This evening on your nostalgic one-stop one stop, one stop shop for movies of yesteryear. We look at the mental hospital that ruled the Oscar roost of 1975. Follow Harvey Keitel as he chases David Carradine all over Napoleon's friends looking for a fight in a role that's almost as unexpected as those direct line adverts. And we visit probably the most filmed island in Hollywood history. Welcome to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. Also, this week, it's back. Once more, Saturday morning cinema of the 1960s makes an appearance on our show, courtesy this time of Paul Leon in our pet ward, Alveston. Yay. You are listening to Sunshine Radio at St. Mary's Hospital on the Isle of Wight. This is They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. I am Tosin, your host for the next hour. And with me in the studio is Sharon. Hello. Hello, Sharon. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we have no Sean. We have no Joe. We just have the two of us this week. Yeah. But we have a good roster of things coming up, do do we not? We do. We are the dynamic duo of... Don't tell, make them like they used to. Yeah, don't, don't. <laughs> they don't tell them like they used to either. Yeah, they, don't, they don't tell them like they used to with brides on makeup like they... So that's something. Yeah, yeah. We're some show where we talk for an hour and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, this week... Oh, well, if you haven't listened to us before, what we do on this show is that we talk about films that are made pre-1980 and we fawn about how lovely they were. So we have a couple of picks. We have people who are on Facebook who actually say, hey... How about this film? We think that this film's great. And so kicking off with us this week, we have a film that's such like that. We have a Tib back tib. again. Our Tib Chis. Yeah, Tib Chis. Yeah, back again, making himself, making his presence felt. I think he just gave us a laundry list of films yeah. that he wanted us to speak about, which is good. We like that. Although everybody else matched Tib, so we have more stuff to talk about. I almost feel as if Tib is already an honorary host of this show. His He's name, a silent partner, isn't he? Yeah, his name gets sent, said so many times. His head's going to be getting big. I can't, I can't be having that. But anyway, this time round, he he suggested the 1975 movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. An acknowledged classic, I think, in anyone's definition of a classic film, isn't it? Yeah, I know. That's the thing about this film. It's one of those films that you hear about. And before I ever saw it, which... Uh, well, okay, as a film buff, you keep hearing about this film. People keep saying, oh my God, what do you think about this film? Well, you need to see this film. Well, this film was amazing, blah, 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 blah. I've resisted until early this afternoon, which I thought I'd better see. Wow, if... that recently? Yeah, there's, yeah. I only finished watching the final scene of the film a couple of hours ago. Gosh, so it's fresh in your memory then. It is very, very <laughs> fresh in my memory. Very fresh in my memory. But if we go into the, the story of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So this is a film about... Uh, well, it's play, it, I was supposed to say a film about Jack Nicholson, but more about that later. It's a film about a character played by Jack Nicholson called Randall P. McMurphy, who is, who is from what it seems, is a petty criminal who has been in the 70s and been sent to, uh, well, no, actually, I think it's the 60s because it's based on a book that was originally written it, in the 60s. Yeah, it's written earlier. Yeah. And he's, so he's, he's been given some sort of work detail in prison and he's been pretending to be insane to get out of it. So they send him to a mental institution to ascertain whether he is actually insane or not. And when he gets there, he sort of like gets there, he sees the kind of, um, well, he sees the organization or the way the institution is and he more or less says, well, I don't think that's right. And he sort of like tries to sort of bring some life into it and tries to treat the inmates there like they're normal and all that kind of stuff, which doesn't really fly that well. And and then the, at the heart of the film becomes this butting of heads or battle of wills between him and the head nurse, which is... Nurse, yeah, yeah, Nurse Ratchet. Nurse Ratchet, who is one... I mean, once again, okay, Nurse Ratchet, plays by Lewis Fletcher. Yeah, she won Best Actress for that. She won... This is, when I say this film ruled the roost of the 1975 yeah. Oscars, it did because it won Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and one other one because Michael won Douglas five. got one, didn't he? Best picture. Best picture. Yeah, because Michael Douglas was Michael Douglas was one of the producers. It was supposed to be Kirk Douglas who was who had the rights to produce it, but he I think he felt he couldn't do it or he didn't have enough energy to yeah. do it, so he couldn't gave it, it to Mike. Yeah, yeah, he gave it to Michael Douglas, and so Michael Douglas won an Oscar like on the stage as one of the producers of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's mm-hmm. Nest. Mm-hmm. Good. St- well, it wasn't the start of his career because he was the streets of San Francisco, wasn't it? But it was a good boost to his. It, it was to taking him seriously as a film. Yeah, star. It, it was, before well, that, he was just, just television, wasn't he? Well, taking him seriously as a film entity. Yeah. Full stop. As as somebody as somebody who mattered in yeah. Hollywood. It was a big step for Michael Douglas actually getting up and getting this film made, yeah. and. 
I mean, a couple of things about the film because obviously you have that sort of back and forth between yeah between uh, MacArthur and and North, North Ratchet, and it's it's kind of weird because in the film I was watching it thinking this isn't going to end well. No, you weren't <laughs> wrong though. <laughs> I was like, oh, look at look at it going. This is not going to because obviously he's kind of he's presented almost like a sort of the cheeky, chappy, rebellious person. Yes. But at the same time, you're looking at it and it's kind of like cheeky, chappy, rebellious, free. Let's all be free and let's actually have like some sort of life in this place. Yeah. And then you just have like this institution that is like, yeah. this is the way we do things. And I'm like, you are not going to win against you, this. Yeah, the, against this system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember I remember watching it. I, I was just thinking, oh, good. You're not going to win. I mean, it's been so long that I kind of knew how it was how it was going to end. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I knew how the film ended. And people always talk about Nurse Ratchets because Louise Fletcher, she won the, the... What do you think of Louise Fletcher in this role or Nurse Ratchets in general? I think, yeah, she, again, she's a force for good. You'd, a force for good and for good and for embodying that institution, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think she thinks she's doing the right thing by controlling these patients by... But from control to tyranny is a, is a fine line, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And yeah, I think she's, it's a powerful, powerful role that she plays. Mm-hmm. And... She just, yeah, she just personifies everything that's wrong about the way people with mental health issues are treated or were treated. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you think you can see how the game he was playing, he thought it was like a cushy ride. I don't want to be in prison. If I'm, in, if I'm mad, then easy life. Yeah. How wrong could he be? Yeah. <laughs> and you think it's, like, it's the classic catch-22, isn't it? You, How can you prove that you're sane <laughs> once you're in that situation? If they said, you've acted like you're completely mad... Well, you're in. You put in this situation. Then how can you defend your sanity? Well, the thing is, that there's actually this one scene in the film where uh, you have all the doctors who are coming together and they're discussing his case. And most of them go, "I don't think there's anything wrong with this guy. I think this guy's yeah. totally sane. I think he's just. It's it. like, what should we do? Like, it's not for us to deal with it. And there's a bit where Nurse Ratchet she says she says something about the line of, "Look, if we kick him out." We're just pushing him out to. We're playing almost like you know, catch the the hot potato kind yeah. of thing, and we're, we're essentially taking our responsibility, putting it to somebody else. And I think we should keep him here because there's something we maybe we can actually help. And I've watched this recently, and I cannot tell in that scene whether she's being genuine yeah. or whether she thinks if I keep this guy here, I can really show him something. Yeah, I, I can, can really. I, I can essentially control his life because it's a battle of wills, isn't there? It's, it's like battle- who has to control here. Yes, he thinks he's playing the system, and she is a system. And he's like, no, you're not playing me. Yeah, well, it, it's yeah. a bit like that, mm. and there is also the the element of she he comes into a system that she runs and she rules yeah. with an iron fist. And, and her says, ward is probably the smoothest running ward in the institution. Yeah, and she's like, you will go in here, there, there. You would do this, you would do that, and there's this whole big thing about watching the World Series where yeah. they have. And it's it's kind of it's almost as if he comes into this world and he shows these people another way. He yeah. shows them, look, that there is more to life. You've been living under this sort of like tyrannical rule for such yeah. a long time. Although, and some of the subsidiary characters as well, aren't they? There's the big I can't remember his name, but the big Indian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They call him Chief. Native American, yeah. They just call chief. him Chief, yeah. And how he's and again with him, you think. Why are you there? Yeah. <laughs> You've seen the most sane person there. Yeah, yeah. It, it's and and there's the scene also where he finds out that most of the people there are there voluntarily. Yeah. And he he blows up going, "What the? What are you Why doing are you here? here? Yeah. Why are you drugged or electroshock yeah. therapy or whatever they did to them? Why would you voluntarily do that? Yeah, yeah. And, and okay, one final thing about Nurse Ratchet is like because of everything you've heard about her, she constantly, constantly makes lists of like you know hundred worst villains yeah, in movie, movie history. Villains, yeah. yeah, movie. I was expecting something along the lines of either you know Miss Hannigan in Annie, or yeah. or like Miss Trunchbull in Matilda mm-hmm. in Royal Dolls Matilda. I was expecting like you know some huge massive ogre, and but there were some times when I was I was watching the film going, I'm going wait a second, Nevi. That's not an easy job to have to work because there's there's a bit where one of the one of the patients he he throws a fit about his cigarettes and I'm, why are my cigarettes I want my cigarettes I want my cigarettes and it, it, and it becomes this big thing and it ends up in a brawl yeah. and I'm thinking these are not easy people to deal with because no. if people are I don't it's hard to find the right language to use isn't it without going back into the uh, the archaic language but yeah. if he is unstable yeah. uh, to use a expression they would have used then then yeah, yeah then she's going to be at personal risk isn't she at times yeah yeah and and it does show that there are sometimes when the people who work there are at risk yeah are at risk and it's almost kind of like one of those things where they have to have hard line yeah. because 
the book it's based on um, uh, was written by Ken Casey. And, and he was actually, he worked as an orderly in a mental institution. So the film, the book is based, um, well, essentially the book that he wrote is based on his experiences working working in there. And I think it's f- funny that he, it, because it's, it's so presented like the Jack Nicholson character, Randall P. Mc, uh, McMurphy. Uh, McMurphy, Randall P. McMurphy. He's presented as almost like, you know, the sort of, well, the Jack the Lad, oh, yeah. like, oh, look at this. Oh, and you're supposed to root for him. I'm not sure I always rooted for him. No, because sometimes his behavior, you think, that, so you think that isn't going to end well. If yeah. you carry on like that, you're not doing yourself any favors. Yeah, yeah. and you could find yourself stuck there for good. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's especially this, like the bit where he realizes that it's not like prison, where he has to be there for a set amount of time that he gets released. Yeah, that this could be forever. He realizes that, that when they tell him, no, essentially, if we don't think that you are you're good enough to leave, you will not leave. And he's like, and he then he realizes what situation he's in. Yeah, he's got himself in that situation by trying to play the system. Yeah, yeah, the system wins. Yeah, it's like the house always wins in the in the casinos, isn't it? In this situation, yeah, the yeah. system wins. Yeah, you know, just when he realizes how how trapped yeah. he is in that situation, uh, and oh, and also I think I think it's a film. So it's a film where because there's sometimes I actually think about it I wonder about Jack Nicholson uh, this is uh, what, I was, what I was alluding to earlier because I have this feeling I know he won the best actor Oscar he's won three Oscars now Yeah. although the problem with Jack Nicholson is that you always feel like he never plays anything other than Jack Nicholson yeah that he's this larger than life character anyway isn't he yes yeah he's, uh, I feel like uh, and he plays large doesn't he when he, when yeah. he acts you get he never does anything subtly does he you tend to feel that he's yeah he takes big, over Yeah. he takes over and, and, and then he's I know that there were a lot of films that were like Cuckoo's Nest that he made, like Five Easy Pieces and stuff like that mm-hmm. in the in the 70s. And in those films, I mean, he just, it makes, those are the kind of films I can't imagine being made like big mainstream mm-hmm. now nowadays. And I don't think, I, I find it hard to imagine that Jack Nicholson would have been like a f- movie star that the way he was if if he was young today. Yeah. Like, uh, yes, you think he's of his time, isn't he, really? Is I think he's, he's very, very much of his time. Yeah. Very much of his time, but I think it's, it's. But I do feel like you know he plays he he plays himself, and but they, whenever you're watching him on screen, you never really look at the character. You just see, oh, that's Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's, Al Pacino does the same thing though. Is it whatever you whatever he's in, he's Al Pacino. Isn't yeah, he? and, and that's one of the reasons why I think Leonardo DiCaprio. I I think he's he's going to struggle to ever win an Oscar because you never get past the fact that even if it's a very good performance, that it's Leonardo DiCaprio giving a yeah. performance as opposed to. Like Daniel Day Lewis, yeah, because he can hide just, himself behind the character, yeah, can't he? or Tom Hardy, like like for, I, you I, saw him, yeah, we I saw I saw him in Legend, yeah, in, Legend. Uh, in the latest. Oh my, oh my. Anyway, this is old movies, not good movies. <laughs> but Legend by t- featuring Tom Hardy, that's a future exception to the rule. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is a future exception. And um, so yeah, he's not like that. And uh, and you think you do feel you're watching Jack Nicholson, yeah. and it's a it's a it's a Jack Nicholson performance. He's he dominates the film. Really. Yeah, we talk about Nurse Ratchet, but he dominates the film when you watch it. It's well, about him. Yeah, I th- I actually think that that might be what got Louise Fletcher the Oscar because she steps up toe to toe with Jack Nicholson, yeah. and when they're both on the screen, you do actually feel that this is a battle of wills as opposed to Jack's gonna win. Yeah. So it's, you've got to be tough to stand up to that sort. You, you've of, got yeah. to be tough to stand up to yeah. that. Uh, Why do you think the film's endured then? Why do you think it's a film we still talk about forty years later? I think it's because part, partly when I watch it, I was thinking that it's very much, it's very much doing its own thing. It's very much concerned with its own world, and it treats these characters as not so much as ciphers because there's other films which I mean, or nowadays any film that you that's made that's set in a mental hospital, is kind of like you know it's compared to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yeah. Nest. I mean, I saw Girl Interrupted the other day, which is right. pretty much the same film but with women. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty, pretty much yeah. It's pretty much it's it's like there's there's some beats in the film that I'm like, hang on, that's Cuckoo's. Uh, or, or, when I was watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yeah. Nest, I was like, hang on. Girl Interrupted did exactly that. And, and there's some scenes in Angelina Jolie's film, I think it's called The Changeling, isn't it, where isn't she put into a mental institution for a while? And again, you have these same scenes. No, no, Angelina Jolie's Girls Interrupted. She's in there as well, but yeah, she's in the film called Changeling where she's in a mental institution. Oh, that's the one where her, son, her kid goes her son missing. Her gets missing, yeah, and then they think she's 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hysterical yeah. or something, and they com- they commit her for a while. Man, nothing's original. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so but uh, so so yeah, you have, and I think it really does care about the characters, and it presents all these different characters. So characters who don't really say much, who are played by people such as Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd and Brad Dourif. I mean, Brad Dourif, who who was the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play movies. Yes. And he he's was, been in lots of things. He's been in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he was in Lord of the Rings as Grim Wormtongue. And I was watching this. And I was I was looking at this well, because he's a kid in Wolf Lord. I was looking at this kid going, this guy kind of looks familiar. Why do I feel like I know this guy? But I've, and, and I just and then, I know you when you grow up. And then all of a sudden it was like Brad Dourif plays Billy, and I'm like, oh my! God. That's him. Yeah, that's him. That's yeah. So you have all these roles played by these character actors who manage to just infuse them with something, mm-hmm. and I think it's because you end up caring for these characters. Yeah. I mean, and then there's some bits that are just, that could end up being quite um, twee or quite like, yeah. like like the bit where they all go for a day and they go on a fishing expedition because Randall Randall steals a bus and breaks them out of the place. <laughs> I mean, that just, you, you just feel like happy for these guys that they've gotten out and they, that they're on the sea and they're fishing and all that kind of stuff. You end up as as annoying as those char- as I can imagine some of those characters yeah. would be to be around in real life. You look at them and go, okay, from this distance, um, I kind of like feel feel something for them. Yeah. And I feel like the film just does its it really does its own thing. And the fact that it has a moment in the film that I, I think you have these see in films a lot of great films. You have it's a bit like in uh in uh, the Great Escape. When mm. the guy, when he say, when he replies thank you or cheers or something like yes, that, yes, he gets tripped up. Yeah, it gets tripped away. Yeah. Where you have these, you have these great moments in of throughout cinema history where it's you have a you have a plan, everything is going okay, and you think okay, you can see the yeah. finish line, and then there's this one little human error that comes in that kind of says that whatever happens at the heart of it, we're still humans, yeah. and the it's tiniest human error and the tiniest human flaw, which in some ways you can see coming. It's like wanting to help a friend out or wanting to do something and then or falling asleep. And and you just feel... And, and just I think, that chaos theory, isn't it? It's that one element of well, yeah, unpredictability. That is humans. That just comes That's in and people. messes everything up. Yeah. And I feel like that that really, really does happen. And, and I, I think that, that really... It, the, the film has that. And also, as you were saying, the big... He, he looked like he was like seven foot tall or yeah, something. Yeah, huge. The, the guy who plays, who plays Chief. And the fact that he just shows up and he's like this, but everybody says he's deaf and he's dumb, so he doesn't really communicate with anybody, doesn't understand what's going on around him. Mm. And as the film goes so they along... they treat him like that way, don't they? They yeah, treat him like he's a, just a tree or something. Yeah, they, tr- they treat him like he's just, he's just there. Furniture. And the only person who starts treating him differently is Randall P. McMurphy. And as the film goes along, how it sort of turns around and then this guy becomes more and more central to the story. Yeah, he he becomes almost like the heroic figure towards the end, doesn't he? Yeah, well, and the the thing that I think about it that, that struck me quite a bit is when I, I was watching it going, hang on, this guy, they're doing something with the film and they're kind of making him more and more central. Then when I read up, I realized that the, in the original novel, he's actually the narrator. Oh right, so it's his voice that you yeah, hear. Yeah, so he's so when I think of, I think it's it's actually a brilliant adaptation mm. in that way it does because everything in the book is from the point of view of, of Chief and it's him saying this is what's happening, this is what happened, and then this Randall P. McMurphy guy comes into the into yeah. the hospital and all that, and the way they did the way they've made the film, it, you can now see oh my word, I've seen how they've adapted the thing and how Chief sort of like slowly comes to the center yeah. and um and I love the final shot of the film, which is just like Chief running across a field and yeah. everything. It's, I remember seeing is it a scene at th- where he's at the window where he looks back from the window. Well, it's yeah he it, it's it ends and then up he's with, yeah, off. yeah yeah essentially it's him throwing throwing something because there's a. There's this thing that you're trying to pull out of the floor that sort of like kickstarts the whole Randall P. McMurphy showing everybody how life could be different. Yeah. And he it ends up with him going up and pulling off the floor, throwing it through a window and then running off, which was one of Randall P. McMurphy's original plans of yes, what to do. Yes, he was going to escape, wasn't he? Yeah, to, to escape from this place. So it's, it's a, yeah, a, I, would, I, would, I quite liked it. I quite so it's a good it. choice from Tib then this time. I think it's a good choice from Tib. It, yeah. I think it's a it's a good choice from Tib. I mean, when I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, well, I don't know, it's a bit slow and all that kind of stuff, and it's a bit seventies. But as it went, but when it comes together, I think the humanity just brings the film together, yeah. and it ends, you end up looking and going, and okay, it actually, does this is a tap very, very into good that film. fear, doesn't it, of of what would happen? What would you do if you were someone said you're not sane? How do you prove that you're not? 
Yeah. That taps into that fear, doesn't it, of being a sane person trapped in a mad world. It's just having all your, having whatever power you have removed. Taken away, yeah. Removed and having to pander to what somebody else thinks you should be doing. Yeah. You're at the mercy of the the stronger person, the strongest person in the room, yeah. Yeah. Goodness. Well, okay, cool. We're going to play some music now. And this is, uh, we're talking about the final bit of One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, the, the final scene. And this is actually played as um, Chief is throwing stuff through a window um, and getting out of the hospital. Good and, choice. Yeah, and going on freedom. Well, going for his freedom, which he promised Randall P. McMurphy he would go. Yes, that was the one flew the end titles from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Can't not remember who wrote it. Hmm, really should have written that down. <laughs> anyway, now um, thank you, Tib, uh, once again. And uh, every Friday, I go into the hospital and speak. Find find a willing willing participant, not quite a victim, but a willing <laughs> participant, to talk to about uh, to talk to and ask two questions really. Which is number one is what's the First film you ever saw in the cinema, tell us a story about that. Where did you see it? Who did you see it with? And also, um, what is your favorite movie ever? Now, this is one of my favorite things to do because some of the stories we get are good. And as I said earlier, we do have yet another story of what Saturday morning cinema used to be like and how it used to be a big thing. And I used to play, you have to pay like, you know, sixpence. You have to get your sixpence ready to go to the cinema. But I bumped into Paul Leon in... He's in, no, it's Lion. Yeah, he said it was Lion. I keep getting that wrong. Paul Lion in uh, Pet Ward Alveston, and this is what he had to say. Okay, cool. So, yeah, my name's Tosin, by the way. Hi, Tosin. Okay, hi. I'm yeah. Paul. Paul, Paul, nice to meet you. So, which one do you want to go for? Do you want to go for first time you ever went to the cinema or favorite film of all time? First time I went to the cinema, well, I was probably something like five years old, and um, my sister was six years older than me, and we used to go to the... Um, uh, Saturday morning cinema at the Odeon in Blackpool and it was, if I remember, something like six pence, six old pence that's two and a half new pence to go um, and I remember it being great fun and I can't remember what sort of cartoons and things there were on but I do remember at one point there was a, a scary ghost thing with a dragon and um, I'm afraid after that I had nightmares about dragons and my me, me mother or my sister had to see me upstairs to bed for a while. So perhaps I was a little bit young for watching that. But Saturday morning cinema was, was a great um, a great tradition in those days. You know, kids used to go and go in the droves. This is before TV was prevalent in, in all homes, you know. I think we had a TV from when I was about about that age, five years, but it was very primitive, a tiny little screen in a big wooden box in the corner with things like George Formey and Popeye on. <laughs> so that was the story of, of roughly when I first went to the cinema. Oh, oh thanks. Thanks so much, because I know we've had, a, we've had a couple of people talk about that, and they've talked about, like, oh, Saturday morning we used to be like, and it was like kids throwing popcorn at the screen. Uh, there was plenty of mischief, yes. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm 58, so born in 1957, so we're talking about 1962 or 1963, and, and kids were just as mischievous then as they are now, but just in slightly different ways, yeah. Yeah. If, when I hear about it, I actually think if you ever watch like um, a Saturday morning kids program now, mm-hmm. it seems like they've, they've tried to recreate that Saturday morning cinema thing where it's all chaos and it's all running around. And it's like yeah, LA. yeah, yeah. Well, it's not too long ago they tried to do that with with um, adult things, you know, sort of. Oh, what do they call them? Um, Chris Tarrant thing, you know, and and uh, Chris Evans type anarchy type things you know oh yes yes, yeah, yes friday yes. night live and yes. stuff tfi friday tfi right. friday and that yeah yeah and what was the one that uh, chris tarrant did beginning with a w daft name what's what's wizzle what's it something tis was yeah that was as daft as possible yeah <laughs> okay thank you so much paul that's my pleasure Yes, so Paul there. Yeah, they did an adult form of Tiz Was. It used to be on in the, late in the evening. 
that Chris Tarrant did, but I can't remember what it was called. But yeah, he did like a, it was aimed at grown ups. Uh, it was on at 10 o'clock at night. Oh, right, no. It's like a TFI type thing, but they did these sort of sketches and silly things. And I thought Tiz Was wasn't that old. <laughs> no, Tiz Was was Saturday mornings. Oh, I never. Oh, did not know that. Did not know that. So yeah, because these are all things that I I was never in the I wasn't yeah. in the country when they were on TV. Because yeah, Tiz was on ITV and it's like Swap Shop or one of these other things was on BBC. Yeah. So it was the ITV version. It was a bit more anarchic. Was <laughs> I used to watch Noel Edmonds on Swap Shop and things and yeah, the people who were like the parents would allow them to watch that sort of thing would watch <laughs> Tiz was on the other side. <laughs> but yeah, we were with BBC. <laughs> well, you're like a BBC family. <laughs> we were yeah, we we're definitely a BBC family. <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, a couple of things because I was actually thinking that I have I have a bit of a connection with Paul because he was talking about Dragon and one of the first films he yes. was watching. The first film I ever saw in the cinema because growing up in Nigeria we did not have well working cinemas when I was growing up. So the first one I was on I actually came over to the UK to go start at an A level college in Somerset, but I was um, often half term. Went to see my friend in in uh, North London, Finchley. I went to the Odeon and Swiss Cottage, the Odeon Cinema in Swiss wow. Cottage. Yeah, and uh, we saw Dragonheart. With, yes, I remember seeing with that Sean Connery. Cinema, yeah. Yep. So my first ever cinema experience had to do with a dragon. So yeah, Paul, <laughs> me and you are like kindred spirits. Yeah. It's all about the dragons. All about, did it give you nightmares and did you have to be escorted up to bed? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, although I could you never were really a teenager. Look, yeah, I was, I was a teenager. I couldn't really, could never really look at Sean Connery the same way again. I was like, no, Draco. You could see, look, look up in the sky and see the... <laughs> cluster of stars that you could imagine to be something oh oh that's how the film ends isn't it, it yeah it beca- becomes oh, yeah. a constellation it becomes a constellation at the end of oh sorry spoiler he dies sorry <laughs> <laughs> although I mean this is happening so often when we speak to people that I'm thinking about we may sh- maybe we should actually just rename this section Sixpence on a Saturday morning yes because Six- I remember when I was in my teens when I used to go to cinema quite a lot they reintroduced showing some of the classic serials from the 40s and 50s oh yeah and where we used to go a lot so we would watch things like Buck Rogers and some of the Tarzan things and Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon, but it was the original 10-minute short yeah, yeah, Saturday, yeah. that they used to play before the main feature. Or the Well, in those days, when you went to the Saturday morning cinema, I think you used to, you'd have an, a B picture, then you would have the serial, which would be, yeah, the short thing, and then you'd have your main picture. Yeah. So you could be in the cinema for four or five hours <laughs> with intervals in between. And uh, all for sixpence. Stop. All for sixpence. Yeah. And then you could choose where you sat, whether you chat, sat in the good seats or you sat in the cheap seats. <laughs> well, yeah, and do the whole Saturday morning thing of yeah. throwing popcorn and all that kind Doing of that, stuff. Cause, oh, yeah, I remember we used to, every now and then the school would 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 hire out the whole cinema and we'd have school picture shows or something oh, when wow. I was at school. And that was going back to the late 70s when I would have been that sort of in my yeah. primary, middle school age. Yeah, I think I said this on the show a couple of weeks ago, but the thing I had, I remember having that in a school, it was you'd have like some TV, like maybe about 20-inch TV. Yeah, all crowded for like, around that. For like 300 kids to watch. I had that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, had to get around. Um, the end of term film sometimes was just crowded around watching yeah. a, a television. The, the other thing that Paul said is that, that made me start thinking is the way technology moves forward and how I was talking about how back then everybody went to the cinema because nobody had the TV. Yeah, you didn't have them at home. And they went to TVs became more and more. You start having the Saturday morning thing that replaced the Saturday morning cinema, the Saturday morning TV shows, like yeah. with with what nowadays would be like your Anton Dex or actually no, they've stopped doing that. But um, but that's but you had that yeah that chill, aimed at because it was only really on a Saturday morning that you had apart from the summer holidays that you had anything aimed at children. There was no children's television in the week. Yeah, yeah. You might have news round in the seventies with John Craven, and you had Blue Peter and things like that, but. It was very much of that ilk, you know, the Blue Peter type programs. Yeah. It was slightly educational and wasn't just completely mad. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. because I could actually, uh, and also the thinking about the whole, when he was talking about like a uh, thing with a small screen in the wooden yeah. box in the you corner. You can picture it exactly, can't you? Well, yeah, because we had, okay, I grew up in the 80s and we had, growing up in Nigeria, we had a TV that was like one of those old CRTs. And I'm thinking that, I don't feel like that was that long ago, but I was actually even thinking that nowadays most kids wouldn't, even imagine that a TV could look like that. No, or, or that it would not be that thin. <laughs> that it wouldn't be some would be thin thing that they could that they could they carry. Yeah. yeah, and as they were heavy as they were. Yeah, they were massive. And the other thing that we've been thinking about is, you know, rotary phones. Like yes. The, yeah. Put your finger in and yeah. Yeah. That nowadays 
kids wouldn't have a clue about no, that. The whole the whole fact they had to pick it up and have like a dial-in tone before you could call anybody, and like if you left it off the hook, it's like you know, beep 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 yeah. beep beep. Like nowadays, it's a different world altogether. And yeah, I know it's, it's vinyl records. These things have just gone into the history, haven't they? Confined to history. Yeah, it was. It's, it's. But I suppose most families aren't they? I think they said the biggest boom in buying televisions was the the coronation, and then I think ten years later or twelve years later, it was the World Cup. Okay. And then so after, then 19... after that, it must have been the royal wedding. Or something. Yeah. So these are like the spike. So most people, the first time they bought television was so they could watch the coronation. So that would have been, what, 1953. Mm-hmm. And then 1966, there's another boom in people buying a television. Yeah. So I remember my mum and dad got married in 1965 and they were travelling around the summer of 1966, my dad's various sisters and brothers. And they were all, every time where they went, they were watching the World Cup. And... <laughs> And often it was the first, they, whoever had the biggest television, that's where... That's where everybody went around went. to. And people before then didn't weren't that bothered about having a television, but it was suddenly like, we've got to get a television to that, watch this. That actually still happens now. I know that. I know there yeah, were... but they say that people buy new televisions for World Cups and things, don't they? Yeah, I remember there was, uh, I think it was Dixon's or something that had a policy where you couldn't return a TV after the <laughs> World Cup <laughs> because people were buying TVs, watching the World Cup, and they're going, and they said, yeah, we decided we don't really want it. We, we don't really want this HD TV anymore. We don't need 80-inch screen in our front room. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and, and they came up with some policies to stop people doing that. But anyway, Paul, thank you so much for that. Yeah. And I found this. I thought this is this is called, a, well, I found it something called the Odeon National Cinema Club for Boys and Girls, okay. which was from the 60s. And apparently this was, this was done in the cinema in Plymouth, I think it was. And this is what used to play before the films for or oh, on Saturday mornings. I just thought it was quite a cool thing. Now are you ready, Uncle Ernie? Right, let's go. We come along on Saturday morning, greeting everybody with a smile. We come along on Saturday morning, knowing it's well worthwhile. As members of the GP club, we all intend to be good citizens when we grow up and champions of the free. We come along on Saturday morning, greeting everybody with a smile, smile. Greeting everybody with a smile. Now, once again, Uncle Ernie, one, two. We come along. I think we should join in. <laughs> on Saturday morning, greeting everybody with a smile. We come along on Saturday morning. Knowing that it's out what wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take that, your technological advancement. I wouldn't mind this being played in the cinema when it went nowadays. I'd be singing along. Yeah, I'm like, Star Wars, play this. On Saturday morning, greeting everybody with a smile. Everybody with a smile. It would work. It, it would, would totally work. work. I love that actually, where they talk about Uncle Ernie. Oh yeah. Because I remember in my Sunday school days as a child, all the Sunday school teachers we called them Auntie and Uncle. Oh yeah. Because when I grew up, it was unheard of that you would call an adult by their first name. Oh no. For, Everybody was, was Mr. or Mrs. If, or like neighbours and Mr. Misses, and then anyone if it's an informal setting, it was aunt and uncle. Uh, look, I, I I grew up in Nigeria. It's still it's still it's still not done. It's still, yeah, you so, don't call somebody. The first I remember time. the first time I got met with somebody older than me, like twenty years older than me. He's like, yeah, just call me Paul. I'm like, Can't no, do sir. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still the same. My, all my neighbours, I've lived in the same house for many years. Yeah, and all my neighbours, I still refer to them as Mr. and Mrs. Well, yeah. If I see them in the street, it's like, hello, Mr. So- Mr. So-and-so. And I talk to my mum and I say, have you seen Mr. So-and-so lately from next door? I couldn't possibly. And she says, oh, you mean Ken? I'm like, I can't call him Ken. I'm sorry, I just can't call him Ken. <laughs> sorry, no, his first name is Mr. <laughs> a few, I, there was a funeral at my church not that long ago. And it was a, an Adelaide who was 88. 
and some people had come from far and wide for this funeral yeah. and my old Sunday school teachers were there and I still wanted to call them Auntie Mary and Uncle John <laughs> <laughs> they're not my auntie and uncle at all <laughs> well, yeah, no, yeah, we are. so here at Uncle Ernie that just brings that back completely that's where we do it and uh, half the people who I call uncle are not related to me in any way whatsoever no. <laughs> but, but okay so Sharon now we're on to a choice because okay we started off with a bona fide classic that Tip yes. picked for us then we had a patient choice and then we've started doing this thing in the show where we have a hidden gem a, a hidden gem yeah. a film that we say is amazing it's brilliant but many people do not know about it so tell us what film have you chosen this yes, week? Yes, I've that? chosen a film from 1977, so I think it might have been dwarfed by other films around about at the same time. And this had a limited cinema release, but it is a film called The Duelists. Yes. And it is the first directorial debut by Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. So it should be up there as a film that is widely known, but it just isn't. I think people, even when I mentioned we were going to talk about this film yesterday, uh, my friend said, I've never heard of it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. The Duelists. It's yeah, nineteen seventy-seven, and it stars Keith Carradine and Harvey Keitel as the eponymous Duelists. Oh, Keith! I thought it was David. Oh, I got that wrong. <laughs> I've got Keith written down. No, no, no. You're right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, so, it wasn't yeah, Kung Fu, Dave. <laughs> it, wasn't, it was the other one. <laughs> yeah, not Kung Fu. All right, cool. That would have been a different kind of duel. That was but, a different duel. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, so it stars Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine. Yeah. And I said Harvey Keitel because, especially when I heard about this film. Okay, I was kind of shocked because when I heard, oh, Duelist starring Harvey Keitel, and I knew him from all his Martin Scorsese yes. movies, where he was, he's like, you know, a, a Italian origin gangster, yeah, gangster somewhere in New York yeah. and everything. So when I heard Duelist, and then I actually started seeing some screenshots from the film, I was like, what is it? Why what did they? they? Yeah. So is, is it said during Napoleonic France? It is. It actually follows the period of the Napoleonic Wars. Okay. So at the beginning, it's just after the revolution. Mm-hmm. And that's what's one of the, the sort of the, the elements of conflict appears, is that after the French Revolution, where the aristocracy was overthrown, and it was like the common man was finally given sort of power and authority, you had uh, the, the, the French army started elevating people in rank not because of their background or because of their history. And so you've got this character played by Harvey Keitel, who's a common man, mm-hmm. who's this ordinary man who's now become an officer in the French army he's in the cavalry and then he meets he clashes with Keith Carradine who is a son of the aristocracy so he's a natural officer so you've got this sort of person who is almost like elevated beyond his social realm and they're both equals yeah and they have this there's this it starts off over a something of nothing. This uh, Harvey Keitel's character, he's a real, a real hothead. Mm-hmm. He's passionate, but he's passionate about defending his honour because he's come from a lower class. You know, he holds his honour very, very close. Yeah. So the slightest insult, he will challenge you to a duel. Yeah. Even though you can't think, you think, what was that all about? Yeah, so kind of like a chip on the shoulder. Chip on the shoulder. So he's very quick to take offence. Yeah. And Keith Carradine, he gets sent on this mission to issue an order to, to Harvey Cartel's character. And he ends up tracking him down. And he, he accosts him eventually at this soiree with this with this lady that Harvey Cartel's trying to impress. Mm-hmm. who's a, a, a lady. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, you didn't have to come to me there. You insulted me in front of this lady. And, and then they, they, he's like picking a fight all the time. And so you end yeah. up with this first duel. Yeah. And then... For the next 15 years, and you see it, you almost see that the Napoleonic War progresses. You see the Russian campaign, you see the campaign involving the European fighting. Yeah. It, it follows the charts, the, the history of the war. And the, and Harvey Cartel's character is almost like he's, he had greatly admires Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, yeah? Because uh, in, during the time of the French Revolution, Napoleon Bonaparte was an obscure Corsican corporal. Yeah. In charge of an artillery unit. He was just. And then. Through his ambition and his power, he became the emperor. Yeah. And so he greatly admires this So like character. so a self-made man kind a of thing. Pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Kind of. And so he mirrors himself on his 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 hero, who's Napoleon. And so these jewels follow the chart and the fortunes of Napoleon himself. So you yeah. can see it mirrors there. So it's, it's a great film. And it's about these jewels. So, so every, is it kind of like Harvey Keitel's essentially chasing Keith Carradine for 15 years and trying to just fight him wherever he finds every him? Time they keep issuing challenges, yeah. So yeah. He's, he, he perceives an insult. So the first fight is about salt settling this perceived insult. Yeah. And then they meet again and it's like, ah, oh, you, you still haven't settled this matter of honour. Mm-hmm. You can uh, So the only way to settle a duel in those days was to accept a fault and apologise. All right. And so because Har- the Keith Carradine, who's the one who's been challenged, says, I'm not going to apologise. I've got nothing to apologise for. Yeah. Right. 
choose your seconds and go and get your sword. And they so they just meet at these periods throughout their life, the next fifteen years, and they these embark on these frantic sword fights. Yeah, but so how? Do, but I usually thought most of these duels are supposed to be to the death. Yeah, no, no, it's till honor is satisfied or until the duel is ended, and because. Harvey Cardell doesn't believe that honour is satisfied at the end of each duel. That's why it keeps continuing. Okay, so how does the duel actually end each time they fight? So you can either, it depends on what the rules are. The rules are, yeah, until honour is satisfied, i.e. someone is pinked, i.e. they get cut. Okay. That can be the end of a duel. Or it can be until one of them concedes, you know, that you've won. You've, All right. You've won. Or it could be if they're interrupted. If they're interrupted the duel, then they can say, honour is not satisfied because this duel did not reach its is natural it, conclusion. It's like, sorry, we've got a war to go fight. <laughs> so yeah. like... But there's some, it's, uh, I think it's a great film. And visually, it's stunning. Because it starts off and you see them dressed in their uniforms. And they've got the plaits down the side of their faces. Yeah. Which is typical of what cavalry officers used to wear. Because they believed that it would stop sabre cuts to the face. Oh, yeah? It would help them. And so they both have these wonderful plaits either side of their cheeks and they wear the the ribboned coats. Well, it's it's really, stunning. It's, it looks stunning. It's really scored. So you know there's going to be a lot of attention to detail. Yeah, it does Because I, I've, seen some of the, I've seen some of the shots and it does look like, they, they do look like paintings yes. almost. Like the, the colour palette and everything like that. It does look as if he's he's made this look like a painting. Yeah. And it's so um, when I talked about it's like you know it's an unexpected role for Harvey Keitel, almost as unexpected as the direct line adverts that he's in at the moment. Yeah, you expect him to be this sort of spiv almost, don't you? This Italian spivy type. Yeah. Thuggy guy. Yeah, thuggy, and then he Against turns up. He turns up as this sort of like you know, French Revolution era yeah. like <laughs> cavalry battle. Yeah, and, and even the way he looks, like as you said, with the plaids down the side of the face and the moustache and everything moustache, like yeah. that. And then as this film progresses, obviously they age and their hair and their dress follows the fashion. So oh, yeah? As the film progresses, Harvey Kardashian looks more and more like Napoleon, but he keeps the moustache. Mm-hmm. So his hair changes, and he's, the hat he wears changes and the coat he wears. So he becomes a more of a Napoleonic type figure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, I, I think it's a, it's a really underrated film. It's a great film. Yeah, well, yeah, I hear that because I think it's it's probably overshadowed by Alien in Ridley yes. Scott's. Some yeah. people would sort of look at Ridley, at Alien as almost Ridley Scott's debut. Yeah, and the fact that it's a costume drama and it's set in a historical period that again, some people I made attracted to that, but some people as soon as they hear that they go, no. Yeah, well, yeah. Just turn away. I'm, I'm actually quite surprised because it was when I heard that this was Ridley Scott's first film and it's a con- it's a costume drama. I'm like, that's not the kind of stuff he was making no. for a while. You don't expect him to he, be he often. Yeah, he just didn't go back to that for all. I mean. The closest thing I could think of that he went was probably the Robin Hood movie that he made. Yeah, and, and Gladiator that... is sort of set in period, isn't it? But oh, it's yeah, not... yeah, Gladiator. You wouldn't yeah. call it a costume drama as such because the costumes in this are, are gorgeous. Oh, yeah. They really well, are. Well, yeah, yes, Gladiator. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Because it's okay. set in a historical setting. And, and this is another one of those films that it's sort of like, you know, film buff circles. People sort of talk about it and they go, like, oh, the duelist, duelist. And I've heard a lot about the ending of the film. Yes. And how, like, I think the final duel that they have, there's some condition that that essentially ends with one of them extreme he, he's he's essentially condemned to spend the rest of the, the rest of his life unsatisfied yes as of the like because because it's until honor is satisfied the, the, the dueling principle is yeah and then one of the principles says as far as i'm concerned you died in this duel okay so honor is satisfied in that that you one participant is dead i regard you as being dead so you cannot ever issue me another challenge oh so he essentially has a chance to kill him but he doesn't he doesn't and he leaves him alive to he leaves him alive Ooh. and then you see him walking away the character who is rejected in this way you yeah. see him walking away and you can see him he becomes that napoleonic figure because he's got this great coat on and he's walking away and you can see in his face this like frustration like frustrated ambition that <laughs> He would keep fighting till they died of old age, basically. And he's, he's here, and you hear these voice, this voice ringing in his ears. You don't see the person speaking it necessarily. You hear the word saying, "To me, you are dead. You can never ever issue me another challenge." Yeah. Because you know, as far as I'm concerned, you died in this duel. Okay, you see, now even that, that, even that, that alone makes me want to go watch the film. I've, I need to go find it. Some have you got it? No. Oh, right. Okay, fine. I'm going to have to find this somewhere. But anyway, we've got some music, which uh, we've got a, b- a piece of music here by Howard Blake, who did the who did yeah. the um, soundtrack for The Duelist. And it starts off with, well, it reminds me, of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about the flashing blade. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the flashing blade, but it gives you a little it's bit of an inkling <laughs> of the kind of, of the kind of film that this is. Yeah. So this is a soundtrack for The Duelist by Howard Blake.
yes. <laughs> so what you just told me that that was based on a story by Joseph Conrad. Yeah, and so, which apparently he'd read about this incident of these dueling officers. Yeah. Um, during the in the French papers, so he it was based on a newspaper account of this running battle between these two officers. So so based on a true story. Yeah. Like, oh, Loosely. That. Loosely yeah. based on a true story. And that's Joseph Conrad of Heart of Darkness, Apocalypse yes. Now fame. Oh, that, yeah. He's a bit of a hidden gem. When it comes to <laughs> <laughs> he's a bit of a hidden gem when it comes to... Like, no, not many people give him... Well, he's not like mainstream known as being the inspiration for Apocalypse Now or anything like no, that. No, that he's... Yeah, that these... Yeah, the people... Yeah, de- delve into these novels and short stories and... Mm-hmm writings and ephemera but yeah joseph Conrad apparently he read about this and then he wrote a short story about it not bad not bad and it became yeah so all your all your apocalypse now fans go find out what joseph conrad did next before i don't know at some point but (laughs) (laughs) go find yeah yeah, go find out what he did with the duelists right and uh now we are on to uh i love movies this is the period of the show where we talk about islands and movies and be, be, be at times when Hollywood has brushed up against the shores of the Isle of Wight or when um, the Isle well, well essentially when islands just shown up in films and we have some affinity with that because we live on an island yes. so this week we are going to talk about what I think is for my money probably the most filmed island in Hollywood history which is Hawaii Hawaii, Hawaii. and the film though well I think there's loads of films you can take your pick yeah. from like the middle of Elvis Presley's movie say, career shocker this does not feature Elvis <laughs> I know I know it does not feature Elvis or a colour yeah although <laughs> even though it's, it's funny because it's like uh, what do you mean a colour blue Hawaii I was thinking oh yeah <laughs> cool <laughs> so it's uh, because I think it's funny because anytime you see El- anytime you see um, Hawaii movies it's almost like Elvis's movies uh, or Elvis's music is almost kind of in just linked with Hawaii. Yeah. Like even when Disney did the Hawaii set movie in Lilo and Stitch, the the entire soundtrack it's Elvis. was Elvis. It was the entire soundtrack was Elvis. But the film that we're gonna be talking about is Fifty First Dates. Fifty First Dates. Starring Adam Sandler, not everybody's cup of tea, and no, Drew, Barrymore, Drew Barrymore. A lot more people's cup of tea. But um from Fifty First Dates we have the Beach Boys, wouldn't it be nice? Yes, wouldn't it be nice? By the Beach Boys. So, Fifty First Dates, what is it about? What is it about? Two characters, Henry and Lucy. Henry is this fun-loving, free-living guy, free-wheeling. He is way through life. Is a bit. He likes the ladies, but he doesn't <laughs> like to commit. Mm-hmm. So, And then he meets this girl called Lucy. And you'd think she would be the perfect match because... He meets her, he falls in love with her, and it's a, they have a wonderful day together. And then the next day, he goes to see her, and she doesn't remember anything about it. Mm-hmm. And she finds he finds out that she's got a short-term memory loss, that a number of years earlier, she'd had an accident, and every day is the day before the accident. Yeah. Her memory is perfectly intact, but she can't remember the events since then. Yeah. And that her family surround her in this cocoon, where they enable her to live that day before the accident, and they never tell her that time has passed. They they keep the, the paper that was the day of the accident. They keep everything the same, so she's living in this bubble. Yeah. And he comes along, and he's like, "What are you doing?" You know, and she so she has no idea that time has passed. Yeah. So then he says for something like, "One day she's going to wake up and she's going to look older in the mirror. How are you going to deal with that?" And their reply is, "That's the thing we've been dreading." Yeah. for the last however many years. And so he wants to, from being commitment shy, he wants to devote himself to making her life better, but bring giving her reality. Yeah. And so he, the film is how, from from the, someone who doesn't want to become involved, how he becomes completely involved. Yeah. And how it turns from his idea of love becomes develops into a different kind of love and that it has to accept other people's limitations mm-hmm. and when you first meet him he he ex- finds out what's wrong with her and he tries to fix her he goes to the doctors he goes to find out he has to fix her and then when he can't fix her he has to accept is there some way that he can live with this condition of hers yeah and adapt his life around her yeah so from being a very selfish man he becomes selfless in that he puts her happiness 
before his own and how he wants to make her life more complete. So he finds a way of how to introduce her to her condition yeah. every day and then tries to get her to fall in love with him every day mm-hmm. and how they can build a life around the limitation, the fact that her memory only lasts a day and that it's the, the clock is reset every yeah. morning. So it's quite a moving film in that it deals with those quite deep issues about do you try to change the person you fall in love with, which you're just trying to do at the beginning, yeah. or do you accept the way they are and then you adjust yourself around theirs? You put someone else's needs before your own, yeah. effectively. So it's a sweet love story well, it's set really, on the beautiful island of Hawaii. Yes, yeah, it's on the beautiful island of Hawaii. And it's, it's, because the thing about it is that I think it, it does it does do a little bit of the whole Hawaiian thing and try to yeah. introduce you to the locals and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, I actually think, for my money, it's probably the best Adam Sandler film. Yes, I think he's the most sympathetic in this, isn't he? Yeah, because... he's annoying. He- he's an- inherently <laughs> annoying. <laughs> Adam Sandler is objectively annoying. End of story. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I think I think in this film, it actually... It, 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 I, I remember watching it thinking, this is probably the best Adam Sandler film. Yeah. As in, I wouldn't say... Some would say not the funniest or anything like that. or But I just think it's actually just the best. Because be- it's a sad subject matter, isn't it? When you actually go to the core of it, what she's suffering is, is heartbreaking. Yeah. What she's going through. So you can't make that a laugh a minute. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Because, but, to make, but to introduce humour into it is good. It works, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, because the, I actually thought, thought it was... Um, did you ever see a film by Christopher Nolan called Memento? Yes. Yeah. I, I've, when I saw Fifty First Dates, I thought this is like Memento. Yeah. But we decided to go... It's essentially, if Memento was a rom-com, this is what it would yeah. be. A romantic comedy. And there's elements of Groundhog Day. In there as well, isn't it? For yeah, her, yeah. for years she's been living Groundhog Day. She's just relived the same day. The over same and over day, again. going to the place where the, all the plans that she had, going to the yeah. same thing over and over again, dressing the same way, just <laughs> the same way, and all the people enabling her by adapting to it. Yeah, yeah. So instead of um, like with Groundhog Day, you've got Bill Murray is the only one who knows what's going on. Yeah, it's the opposite in but Fifty every, First Days. Everybody knows what's going on, but, but her. her. Yeah. yeah, it's the polar opposite. Yeah, but uh, I think I, I think uh, I I quite like it. And obviously, when we talk about I Love Movies, and we think. Could this have been made on the Isle of Wight? Yes. <laughs> We've got a zoo. We haven't got a, a sort of what is it? They've got dolphins and oh yeah, because, whales because she's she's like a she's like a wildlife. Yeah, she's got a job and she's functioning in that way. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they could have tigers. We could, yeah, we could totally make. Uh, I think we should. One of these days, I think I want to start doing that as a freelance video producer. I'm going to start like trying to remake. Yeah, Island that'd be movies. fun. <laughs> on the Isle of Wight. We just like, modify them slightly. It's like Jurassic Park. We're going to remake Jurassic Park on the Isle of Wight. Just go to Dino Isle yeah. and like just film just the head, <laughs> the head of the T-Rex. And someone go, oh, go, go, go to Black Gang China. Go to Area Fifty One of Black Gang China. Just so like film all these different things. That oh, it'll be it'll be a we wonderful, it'll be a wonderfully <laughs> hilarious B movie. <laughs> wonderfully, I'm <hilarious>. in. <laughs> Wonderful and it's it is terrible this. I'll be the goat or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So that's it. Oh the fifty first dates are island it's movie of island the week. Movie. I love movies. Woo <laughs> Yeah, we have we are almost out of time. And uh in, with on that note, we just want to say thank you very much for being here or for listening to us today. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you get well soon. Hope you go home and watch some movies and please remember that as always they just do not make them like they used to.